Welcome to episode 12 of Song Chronicles. My guests today are the incredible McBroom sisters, Durga and Lorelai McBroom. My longtime friends, who I have known since I was in high school, have both had wide-ranging experiences and an incredible career performing live and traveling internationally with marquee legends like the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Brian Wilson, Billy Idol, Niall Rogers, and a band they've come to inhabit as part of their own musical personas, Pink Floyd. Their Pink Floyd connection shows up in the title of their long-in-the-work debut album, Black Floyd, which contains the McBroom's own arrangements of several Floyd classics, along with powerful originals. I was honored when they asked me to be a special guest to sing with them on Wish You Were Here. This conversation took place September 14th, just after Lorelai had returned to her home in New York City after spending months in England due to the pandemic. Durga phoned in from Los Angeles, where she's been kept from her home in Rome since Christmas. The topics of this interview touch beyond the incredible album they've made. Their story is unique in the way they were brought up by two professional doctors. And both of them have been exposed to so many cultures all over the world. It gives them an insight into how we as a country insulate ourselves from other cultures. Song Chronicles is proud to present episode 12 with the McBroom sisters. So, so you think you can tell Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell a green field From a cold steel rail Smile from a vein Did they get you to trade your heroes for ghosts, hot ashes for trees, hot air for a cool breeze, cold cover for change? Where are you both? I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm in New York. You're in New York now. You're no longer in London. Yes, I came back a week ago. And that wasn't easy, right? It was a breeze. The airport was really empty. The flight only had maybe 50 people on it. I was supposed to wear my mask through the whole flight, but there was sometimes I took it off because there was literally no one, rows and rows in front or behind me. And then when they came in, we had a questionnaire and I explained I'd been in England for two weeks because they wanted to know where you'd been for the past two weeks. Took my temperature, gave me a little card suggesting that I self-quarantine. I've gotten two phone calls from them to make sure I'm okay and I'm planning to go get tested anyway. Um, and everything's been great. I'm so glad I didn't come home when I first was supposed to because that would have been a nightmare. 
Oh, well, welcome back. Thank you. It's nice to be home. I was gone for six months. I had a great time where I was, but it's really nice to be home. I spoke to you when you were there, and, and there was a little bit of uncertainty and restlessness about, can I come home? And I, I'm happy to hear that you are. Yeah, me too. More importantly, since the beginning of the year, I've been really present to the concept of synchronicity and to really be present to what the universe is handing me. Mm-hmm. Um and to just be there for it, to, as my friend puts it, ride the synchronicity highway. And because Lorelai was stuck in England, Lorelai and David got our album done to a degree that I know we couldn't have done otherwise. It's, I'm so proud of it. Me too. And by the way, I heard back from um, Nick Mason and his assistant. He really likes the album. Really? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, he really likes it. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, he's such a sweet man and such a great sense of humor. Yeah. I gotta tell you, Nick Mason is one of my favorite human beings. It's so funny because he's always sort of looked, well, since I've known him, he looks like when work in an office and be a banker or something, but he's hilarious. The man could literally do stand-up comedy. He is that funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember one time we were going to the gig and we were in the van and, you know, as he would do, he's reading the daily paper, making his commentary. And some woman had seen the face of Jesus in a tortilla or something absurd. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Nick's going on about it and saying, you know, this is the supreme being we're talking about. You would think he could do better than to put his son's face in the food <laughs> to communicate with people and <laughs> putting Jesus's face in a blancmange or something. You would think he would be able to communicate with human beings in a much more efficient way. I was rolling around. I almost peed myself. I was laughing so hard. He's just hilarious and a delightful person. I'm so happy to hear that it's all culminated in a whole record and it came out so well. Thank you. Can I just say also, Louise, I am just thrilled that after all these years, the three of us got to collaborate on something. Who would have thought back in those days when I used to run around with no, I still run around with no shoes on, but you know, with my dirty feet running around your mother's house that the three of us would have. And I'm really, really, really pleased with how it came out. I think it's really unique. I think it highlights all of us really nicely. And the blend you know, near the end where all three of us are singing harmonies and everything, I think it's just gorgeous. Happy you said that. Said, who would have thought back then? Yeah. Life was so different. For people listening, we've known each other most of our lives. Durga, how old were you when I first met you? Probably 12. Yeah. So I lived in Laurel Canyon and we went to the same school. I believe I'm a couple years older than you. So um, you probably went in a different class than I did. You were singing with Pink Floyd. I don't know, were you ever at David's house in uh, Maidenvale? I was, but I yeah. used to go to the to the middle of the night clandestine meetings where <laughs> David was having a rough time after he and, and Ginger divorced. And he would have what I call, what I called the Henry VIII parties, where he would call up everybody at like 1130 at night and say, come round, eat, drink, be merry. And so we <laughs> hang out, you know, in the middle of the night. Because I didn't live that far from there. I only lived about 15 minutes. I lived in Labrick Grove. 
So I would hop over and, you know, it would be one of those. And he'd have a Jeroboam of Cristal champagne sitting on his knee and sit in his, you know, throne, like whatever chair. And we would just laugh and, and keep him company because he was quite lonely in those times before he met Polly. And that's one of the reasons why I've always given her so much credit. She really lifted him out of a dark place. And I've always loved her for that. That's wonderful. I used to go around there with Nick Laird Clues, and we'd play songs, talk about music. Well, this is wonderful, and it's McBroom Sisters' Black Floyd. And it's on Bandcamp. It's also on Amazon, on iTunes, and we have links on our website, mcbroomsisters.com forward slash album. And we have other things there, too. We have hats. We have COVID-19 masks. We've got T-shirts. And it's just the beginning of our merch. (laughs) We just got calendars. Yes, calendars, photos to sign for people, hand-painted sneakers. I'm even included some jewelry that I make in one of the packages, a vocal library. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Who's painting the sneakers? Me. Nice. A marbling technique where you put paint on water Mm -hmm. and then you dip the shoe in and it like makes a marble sort of effect. Wonderful. Oh, and we should probably mention all the people that are connected to this album. I mean, I was going to ask you, can you explain the, the inception, the concept you came up with and how it all came together? Yeah, Durga, go ahead. Tell them why we call it Black Floyd and what our thoughts were behind all that. I came up with the, with the name Black Floyd, but it, it ties into, obviously it's a play on words with Pink Floyd, but, um, and cause we're black, <laughs> but also it pays homage to all of the great blues musicians and the musicians that led to the inception of rock and roll that were black. And it's also kind of a nod to Pink Anderson and Floyd Council, which is where the name came from. Originally, they were called the Teapots. <laughs> really? Yes. And there was some conflict that another band had the same name or a similar name, so they had to come up with something else. And as I understand it, um, the, both Pink Anderson and Floyd Council were blues men. The band was not necessarily direct fans of their music per se, but that's where the name Pink Floyd comes from for people that don't know. And they were two black blues men. And the thing that we've also loved about working with British bands um, is they acknowledge the significance of the influence of American blues on their music. And um, so many artists that have been forgotten by most American outlets. These people have kept their music alive by acknowledging them, mentioning them. Like um, when I was on tour with the Rolling Stones, they talked a lot about, or I should say Keith always played some kind of really old school uh, blues music in the lounge when we were backstage before the show. And I loved that because I heard stuff I'd never heard before. I could see where certain influences were coming from and uh, that special. It was something that all the British bands acknowledge their American influences. And I think that that's awesome. Gary Wallace, who I toured with Pink Floyd with, is the musical director for Tom Jones. Tom is deep, deep into old blues you know, black singers, and uh, he doesn't want to know anything pretty much past like, 1962 uh, in terms of what he listens to and, and what he's really into. Uh, I mean, he went through his whole sex bomb period, but right now that's where he's gone to. He's gone to roots in that. 
And it's my understanding that what happened with these guys who are all, you know, in their 70s now is they were uh, exposed through merchant marines that were coming overseas and they'd bring records. And it was like, oh, look at this music. And it just continued. How does that work back into the Pink Floyd songs that you covered? Well, we chose, first of all, songs that we personally had a liking for. But also, um, I think we picked songs that kind of suited our personalities. I know that for me, Have a Cigar is really the part of me that loves to get on stage and be animated and aggressive and a real rock and roll chick. Come here, dear boy. Have a cigar. Erica? What do you want from me is kind of the same for me. Believe it or not, I have a very similar range to David. So uh, there are several songs that uh, I really like singing. They suit my voice and my range. Light is changing to shadow And casting a shroud over all we have known It just, you know, all goes back to the fact that without Black American blues singers, there would be no rock and roll and there would be no Pink Floyd. That's how that all ties in. But also, the two of us, we've added, I think, a certain soul to a lot of the music that, I mean, if you compare a white Englishman and a Black American woman, there's going to be a little bit more soul going on in our presentation. So that's definitely added to it, to, to our reimagining these songs. With that description, everybody should go and download it immediately. <laughs> well, it's also that um, it's kind of typical to hear men do Pink Floyd songs, whereas there have been very few women that have covered Pink Floyd songs. It's, it's been done, certainly. But I think that we, we bring something unique to it, particularly the arrangement that Durga came up with on um, The Great Gig in the Sky, where we end it singing in harmony together. Mm -hmm. I had never heard anybody do that until she came up with that idea, and I love it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because of the fact that also Lorelai and I perform this music so much that this is what we do now, tour the world, singing these songs. We've come to inhabit them in a, like a comfortable suit in a way. So we have certain nuances and things that we've developed over the years that we've brought to our performances on this album. And that's because we've worked with some bands, some Pink Floyd tribute bands that have allowed us to sing lead where we're not just doing background vocals. And so that has allowed us to develop our own approach to some of their songs. Can you talk a bit about the Australian Floyd that you've been a part of, Lorelai? Yeah, I joined the Australian Pink Floyd in 2011. Um, I was originally just supposed to be a guest for a few shows on the East Coast, and that turned into, will you join the band? <laughs> and of course I said yes. And that was thanks to Durga, because they had approached her, and she was booked for something else at the time, and she suggested that they uh, work with me. I had kind of simultaneously emailed them and said I was looking for a gig. So it just worked out great. But they are the number one Pink Floyd tribute band in the world. They've literally sold millions of tickets in their 30, I believe it's 33 year history. They started in Australia in 1988. 
moved to the UK a little while later and just kept building until now they have a tremendous following and we toured the US, Canada, Europe, UK, um, and every once in a while an exotic place like Malta or Turkey, um, Russia. But because of the pandemic, it hit while we were on tour in France. So we're hoping to resume next year in January. We have a schedule for the whole year, but we have to wait and see if um, we'll be able to actually do that. But it's a fantastic show. It's a lot of fun to do because the music is so well played and the videos are all different. We don't use Pink Floyd's original material. We have reconstructed our own approach and some of them are quite modern. For songs like Welcome to the Machine, I just love that video. It's like talking about the music business and the, how sterile everything is and people watching concerts through their phones and you know, it's really cool. Very prophetic, the lyrics on those records. Yes, absolutely. And at the same token, we did originals too. We did six original songs so that we wouldn't be just another tribute. You're talking about on the album? Yes. Yeah, there's a song that I co-wrote with John Karen called Gods and Lovers that I really like. A song I co-wrote with Guy Pratt called A Girl Like That. A song that Lorelai wrote with Lemmy Kilmister from Motorhead. A song I wrote with Dave um, Kersner called Cocoon. A song Lorelai and... Paul Literal, the father of her son Miles, wrote, which is also a very timely song. So we've got the whole gang in, <laughs> basically. And in terms of what I do, I work with different Pink Floyd tribute bands all over the world. I rarely sing backing vocals with these groups anymore. They allow me to be featured as a guest star. And I go from Argentina to Kazakhstan. I, I have a Pink Floyd tribute band of my own now called Pink Floyd's Legacy. They're based in the UK, but we tour all over Russia and Kazakhstan. And we're coming to Prague next year. They're fabulous musicians, really lovely guys. And now myself. And do you know Andy Kane? Yes, very well. Yeah, Andy now our new lead male singer. So he and I share leads. On this. He's a great yeah. singer and a wonderful man. I know, yeah. Bunty. <laughs> you know, that's his nickname is Bunty. I've known him for many, 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 many years. And he's just come on board. So we're very excited about that. That's wonderful. So you, both of you have really spent your adult lives touring. You know, you've been traveling. You haven't been stuck in one place too long. Although, Lorelai, you and I spoke a month ago and you were telling me you have had some times when there wasn't work and life seemed uncertain and, you know, you found your way out of that because touring is the livelihood that we all... Yes, the issue initially was that my son was little and I just really didn't want other people raising him. So I chose to stop touring. I could have done quite a bit. Actually, his father's a musician. Paul Literal is a horn player. He plays trumpet and he's played on loads of hit records. Hot, hot, hot with a uh, Buster Poindexter living in America. James Brown, Word Up cameo, Love Shack B-52s. And the list goes on and on. And we met when he was in the horn section for the Rolling Stones. When we got off the tour, I was offered Guns N' Roses, Simply Red, Don Henley. I turned them all down because he was like, if you go away, because they were quite long commitments, we won't be together. So, and then three years later, I got pregnant with Miles. So it was a difficult struggle financially. At some point, it got extremely difficult. 
but I managed to get through it. And someday I'll write the story down. But it was incredible to come back to touring after 20 years of being off the road with Rod Stewart. Interimly, I worked for another company, the Underground Network. We were doing concert promotion and I worked in A&R a little bit in production for a label, a small label. And I did what I could, you know, to kind of keep a toe in it. But it's great that since 2010, really, I've been touring pretty steady and making my living that way, that and selling jewelry that I make. And Durga, what have you been doing in the last period of time? You know, I toured with Pink Floyd for many years. And then I had also started Blue Pearl, which is my dance techno house band with youth in the UK. And then my plan was to break out over there and then come to a label over here. And then when I moved back to the United States, I moved to Miami and I was negotiating with RCA Records and as happens, the A&R guy I was working with vanished. He must have got fired or something. So I had to figure out something else to do. So our mother got quite ill at that time. So I spent a couple of years mostly taking care of her. And then I decided after she, eventually after she passed away, I went to massage school. I moved to Santa Cruz and then from there I moved to Hawaii where I met my late husband. So I worked as a massage therapist for a while. I lived in Hawaii and then we moved to Big Sur where he was from and I worked at the Post Ranch Inn which is a fabulous wonderful resort hotel. Uh, the spa was rated number one in the United States five times in the Condé Nast Traveler's Guide. Anyway, while I was with him is when I got my first invitation to come to Argentina to guest with a band called The End who I adore and that's really what started me doing these tours. One turned into or actually one tour turned into several. And once the word was out, people started sending me invitations to come and work with them. And I've managed to turn it into a successful, fairly lucrative career. Although, yes, there are times when it's quite uncertain. And after my husband passed away in 2015, I decided since I work over in Europe more than here, I decided to move to Italy. So most of the time I'm based in Rome. But during this pandemic, I had come to LA for Christmas and then I got stuck here. And now I'm trying to get back to Rome as soon as I can. I need to find somebody to rent my apartment here again. And as soon as I do, I'm out. I love yeah. my friends in Los Angeles and it is my home, but it just feels so that energetically it's uncomfortable here right now, I think. And I'm not liking it. Yeah. I, I mean, I wonder if it would be that way anywhere right now. True. But let's put it this way. I've already booked a show in Rome for November and Rome is getting back to normal. Italy's getting back to normal. Bands that I normally work with over there are starting to do shows again. So I need to get back to work. And I can't do that here. They're not booking shows in the United States, really. Not many. So interesting. the whole approach to the pandemic has been quite different. I mean, Italy got hit so hard so early on, but they really cracked down and were quite draconian in their measures to contain the virus. And it paid off. So now life is going back to normal there. And if I didn't have a lease, I wouldn't be allowed in the country. But I have a lease. I have an apartment there. So I need to get back into it. Yeah. I would say the same about New York because New York was also quite strict. I wasn't here at that point. But my son was here and he had advised me, stay in England as long as you can because it's horrible here meaning that they had curfews, you know, you weren't allowed to go anywhere unless it was essential, et cetera, et cetera. But that was effective. And now New York City hasn't had any deaths in quite a while. They had two in upstate New York, which is, I believe, where it started here. But, I mean, it's been 
slow, steady. You got to wear a mask. You can eat outside. Can't eat indoors yet until the end of the month. But I really believe that because they were strict, it really helped keep just cut it. I wish the rest of the country were so willing to comply because this thing would be over. Yeah, that's the other thing that is different about here as opposed to, I mean, yes, there were some people who complained in Italy, but Italians were like, we don't care. That things are so different in terms of attitudes between here, the United States, and other countries. I mean, in Italy, at first, people started to complain because, you know, it's a very national tradition to go see your parents on a Sunday or on the weekend and have family dinners, and that wasn't allowed. And people complained at first, but the the authorities were like, we don't care, we'll throw you in jail. And they were arresting people and putting them in jail for noncompliance. So they got it together, and it worked. Here, people are so hung up on personal freedom and all that other stuff. It's like, this is not a question of personal freedom. It's a pandemic. This is a medical emergency. And people don't seem to understand that. I mean, the fact that masks have been used as a preventative measure to spreading contagion for over a hundred years and people are complaining about it now, I can't even fathom the mindset that people have. It's not that difficult to wear a mask when you go out. I mean, really? Yeah. It's childish, in my opinion, when people don't want to do it. I mean, it, it reminds me of when you go on a date with a guy and it's time to do the do and he's like, oh, I don't like condoms. I'm not going to wear one. Really? Really? You're not? It's exactly the same. Exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I don't care about anything except what I want. Yeah, my own pleasure and my own, you know. Well, you know, if you raise a child like that, they don't know any different. So I guess this country has been raised like that. Pretty much. You just press a button. We're the, we're the spoiled kid on the playground that has all the best toys that nobody really wants to play with because they got all the cool stuff. Everybody plays with them. But, you know, we have tantrums and break stuff and take our stuff and go home if, if we get, don't get our way. That's how this country is looked at. And if you look on the map now, there are, I believe, 107 countries where American tourists are not allowed because of this attitude. I'm going to have to jump through some hoops to get home. You know, luckily, from what I understand, if you can prove urgency, work, or for medical reasons, you're allowed into Italy. Yeah, I mean, I have friends in Italy who are going off on holiday on the, you know, to the beach and stuff like that. And and I'm thinking, I want to do that too. <laughs> and they're fine doing it now because their very strict measures were quite effective. Well, it sounds like that'll work out. And, and how are things in the UK and London, Lorelei? Well, when I was there, they were kind of lax in the beginning, similar to the United States, until Boris Johnson got it. And then, um, you know, once it was the prime minister was in the hospital, the attitude got much more strict. You couldn't drive with two people even in a car. Uh, You had to wear a mask everywhere. You weren't really supposed to go out except for to buy food and essentials. And it definitely got everything down where they weren't experiencing as many cases of infection or death. At one point, around the time I left, they had been down to zero. Now I've understood that the numbers started to go back up. They've got a new restriction that no more than six people could gather that started, I believe, today. 
And over the weekend, I saw news reports, people were cramming into pubs and like just stupid behavior. Obviously they're limiting you to six people for your safety. Why go out in these mass parties and think that, oh, you know, it's gonna be okay. Just the, the stupidity of certain people everywhere is mind boggling. I didn't mind staying in. Personally, I don't have a problem staying in anyway because of all the traveling I do. When I'm off, I like to stay home. But there are productive ways to deal with it. And I feel that a lot of people are just being lazy and spoiled. Don't don't really make the connection. They don't want to accept that this is as serious as it is. Oh God, I am so freaked out by this mindset of this is really about controlling you and. Are you out of your mind? I try to tell people, I have a friend who is a respiratory therapist. She has been treating COVID patients since February. She has told me what it's like. It's not pretty. It's really bad. And she suggested that when I go out, I even wear a face shield. Uh, This is someone who is on the front lines treating this every day. Also, you know, the fact that Lorelai and I grew up with physicians as parents, we aren't mistrustful of doctors because we grew up with them. So when a doctor tells me, wear a mask, stay at home, wash your hands, use just common sense precautions, that just makes sense. And these idiots out having these super spreader events where they're out at the beach and out at the, you know, in the club, you can live for a year without going out to the damn club, you know, but ventilators are no joke. It's not funny. It's not cute. And the deaths that people that I know have suffered are horrific. You're alone and you basically drown in your own lungs. It's not cute. So Let's see, a beer out with some buddies against risking dying alone on a ventilator. I I think I'll stay home. Thank you. I don't know if it's stupidity as much as denial. This not wanting to look at something that hasn't occurred in your lifetime because you don't have an experience of it, it must not be real. There's nobody living even to speak to who can say, yeah, I've been through this before. We're home, so therefore we're relying on media, and media is so divided depending on who you're listening to, what you're watching, because you know somebody who works in a hospital and is dealing with patients with respirators. That's firsthand knowledge. But right now, so many people are getting their information from things that they can't see and touch, and they're just deciding who to trust and who not to trust. So that's a dangerous situation. I agree with you. Um, the other thing is, I believe there are large numbers numbers of people who don't personally know someone who's either had it or died from it. Whereas for us, particularly because we're in really big cities, me being in New York, our oldest sister has six friends that have died. Durga has two that have died. We've had relatives that had it. Uh, our niece had it. Our other niece's roommate got it, and so she had to move out to keep herself from getting it. It cost her her job because they were afraid that she might come down with it. I mean, it's it's much more personal for us because we actually know people. I have another friend who's a journalist that got it. And if you don't know someone, sometimes it's more like, oh, that's just happening over there. That's just them. 
whoever them is, particularly if you're talking about a city like New York, where it's highly dense to begin with. And if we had been told sooner, I'm quite certain that because the governor, the governor was pretty strict here, would have locked down hard. And of course, mistakes have been made. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in nursing homes that died and it just spread through the nursing homes and it was very bad here. But they did eventually get it under control. And as I said, now things are starting to come back to normal. Since February and now, a lot more people do know people who've had it, but they're still in denial about it because they think, oh, it won't happen to me. The thing is, if People are listening to this. If there's one person who takes more caution and as a result of listening to the daughters of physicians, that would be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's just, it's common sense. If there's something going around that is airborne that you can catch that could kill you, you might want to take it seriously. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to what next year will bring because I'm really hoping that out of this, something really wonderful happens and a new appreciation for life and a new appreciation, especially for what we do. Because right now, yeah, next year, well, the next several months is quite uncertain in terms of how I know certainly we how we're going to sustain ourselves. I mean, I have one show booked. Normally, I would have a whole winter tour lined up, and I don't because a lot of people don't want to try to plan live music until after January. So these next few months are going to be trying and don't get us started on the political situation that has our government not taking precautions to make sure that people are taken care of. I don't want to erupt on your podcast and I've been known to do that. <laughs> Let's talk about your record and the musicians who contributed, who you collaborated with, the co-writes and the songs that you've written, Dave Kersner and the making of it. Yeah, well, we started out, Dave Kersner was the original single producer. But since we started this, how many years, Lorelai? Seven. Seven. We started in 2013. That's right. Yeah, it's been seven years since we started this. And we have gone on. Dave Kersner is very prolific himself. He's had several projects come out. So we started taking more of a hand at the helm and getting people to help us and come in with us. John, Karen, and I wrote some songs when I was negotiating with RCA. And I went up to his house in upstate New York and Gods and Lovers was one of those songs that we wrote together. It came out of an idea that I had originally had. I wanted it to be kind of an homage to Joni Mitchell. So it's an open, I thought it was a G, but I think it's an open C tuning. Anyway, one of her typical tunings that John put on the guitar. And the, the rhythm track had come from this sample that he used to have to run during sound check with Pink Floyd that played behind Learning to Fly. And I thought of this four on the floor kick drum backbeat to go with this. And he was like, how did you think of that? I said, I just would hear that whenever you would run it during sound check. So we came up with this song. Anyway, we recorded it with a bunch of the guys that played on the album, like Fernando Perdomo and um, Derek Cintron, I think plays drums. Yes. And then we sent the track to John and he just sprinkled magic Karen-ness all over it. The, the keyboard parts that he added just lifted the track so much. And we were just thrilled. I almost started crying when I really heard it because it was just perfect. And I even play a little keyboard part on it, which I'm proud of because I'm going to get into <laughs> more playing. <laughs> we also were able to get all but one member of Ozzy Floyd to play on the album. Some of the originals, like my song, Forgotten How to Smile, 
they played on that. And also a friend of mine from an old blues band I was in with um, Paul in Nashville, Dave Ennis. He's a wonderful keyboard player. And I was so happy to be able to get him on it. Paul played on it as well. Our sax player, Mike Kitson. So that was a thrill. We also got... Billy Sherwood. Yes, Billy. And Dave Kersner's band would be with us. We were doing the Yes-hosted Cruise to the Edge. We've been doing that since 2015. So every time we'd get off the cruise, we go in the studio. Mm -hmm. And we did that several years in a row. And that's part of why it's taken so long to get it done, because Durga was either in L.A. or Italy. I was here in New York or on tour somewhere. And Dave Kirshner was also all over the place. So it took us a while. However, the pandemic really allowed us to totally focus on getting it done. And that was a blessing in disguise. Not to mention the fact that, you know, Dave Fowler is always so busy. And the fact that he came in and just really moved out the edges and gave it a really finished sound. We never would have gotten him locked down like that unless he was literally locked down. And for that, I'll be... (laughs) That's true. I want to talk a bit about your experience. You sung with Mick Jagger on Gimme Shelter live. And I want to talk about your experience going on tours as being the black background singers. You know, how we talked a little bit about this. Well, actually, Durga and I spoke. We talked about how this feeling of empowering sexuality, using the power and stepping out of a stereotype, taking control of how you are projecting yourself and using that. I think Durga will remember the conversation we had about it. I do. I personally used that because that is a lot of my persona. I'm very in ownership of my own sexuality, being one of those children of the 60s and 70s in the women's rights movement and all of that. I'm very thankful that I grew up in that era and no one was going to tell me no. I mean, even touring with these guys, though, they would try to tease me. I mean, they would try to tease me. I generally would pick one guy, usually in the crew, and stick with that person through a whole tour. Meanwhile, the whole band, or if you held a snake still, they would have sex with it. And they're trying to tease me about my appetites and all that. And I'm like, look, you guys are total sluts. Don't say anything to me. You know, I'm a woman. I like sex. So deal with that. And in terms of Blue Pearl, you know, I looked great. I had a hot rockin' bod, so I used it. Why shouldn't I? It's part of who I am. And there's nothing wrong with female sexuality. And now we've come full circle to, you know, Cardi B and what's her name? The Stallion? Anyway, doing WAP. I love that track just because they're like, we don't care what any of you say. We are beautiful, voluptuous, sexy women with large sexual appetites. And that's how it is. And men have been doing it for centuries, so why shouldn't we? Now, I would say for me, um, the biggest time that the issue about how we project our sexuality was with the Rolling Stones. Because the other girl on that tour had been on tour with you too. And so she was a really like earthy, not self-righteous, but you know, she wasn't into the commercial element of music. She was really more like be sincere. And when they wanted us to dance and wear really sexy outfits and stuff, that made her uncomfortable. And I said to her, it doesn't matter. You are just portraying a role. 
get into it. And I enjoyed it, you know, it because it allowed me to interact with Mick Jagger a lot more because I wasn't afraid of him. When he would come over to me, I would interact, I would dance. And, you know, it was like taking command on stage is about being secure in who you are anyway. And if it's sexy while you're doing it, more power to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally did a remake of Naked in the Rain where I was naked. I mean, the first one, I'm covered in mud wearing a loincloth, not not even a top. And that was my idea. And it made sense with the storyline of the video. The second time we did it, we shot it at one of the big studios in England where they shot Star Wars stuff. But they set up this semicircular waterfall around me and I'm naked in the middle of it. They strategically blurred parts of my body in post-production. But yeah, I'm naked. I'm naked. And my whole thing behind that was, you know, as long as I still look like this, I might as well flaunt it. And why shouldn't I? There's nothing wrong with a naked female body, especially if, you know, I wasn't being gratuitous in any way. It was, I was just like, oh yeah, I'm here singing, dancing, and I happen to be naked. Because the song is called Naked in the Rain. So I was naked in the rain. And that's an interesting point, too, because in European art, female body is portrayed as a beautiful as a beautiful thing, no matter what size or shape. And in this country, we have overly sexualized the female body used to sell products. And in a lot of the rock and roll videos, the women are used in a way where it's kind of worship of the male in the video and not for its own sake. So yeah, there really is a lot to be learned in the way that art portrays women's bodies because there, there is this slut shaming that goes on with naked bodies with women here in this country. You know, it's not even this country. It goes so far back. I mean, this is something that I'm a student of in terms of if you, for 200,000 years of human history, the portrayal of a deity was the sacred feminine, the matriarchal religion, was the idea of the sacred divine mother. And if you see some of those old, old statuettes of a very curvy matriarchal deity, the statues were of a divine mother goddess. And it's big hips and big breasts, and she gave birth to the world. Then, with the advent of the Judeo-Christian religion, men came along and had to sort of cut all of that down. So what used to be the divine women at the temple that would commune with men sexually to have an experience of God, they suddenly became prostitutes. And all of those things had to be made ugly and small. The wise women who were the midwives and all of that suddenly were witches and were being burned because they had too much knowledge. And that's carried on today in the patriarchal society that we still live in. This is another subject I could get carried away on, but I won't. (laughs) Well, I've had topic about uh, a combination of things. I remember when Donna Summer came out with Hot Stuff and I was really offended by it. And it wasn't because it wasn't a fun song. It was a fun song. But I thought, why are you feeding into this stereotype that black women are just whores or out on the street, you know, trying to pick up a John or there's an um, unfortunate element in America in particular, because we have such a Puritan background as a country 
that black women became like this fantasy, overly sexualized African, you know, thriving animalistic hunger for sex and all this, which I really deeply resent that stereotype. Um, and so I've seen where we've certainly progressed past that. Now, I remember when Erica Badu came out, how part of what made her stick out was that she had her clothes on. And there were all these other women that were influenced by hip hop that were just completely the opposite. They were singing about sex, which is fine, but Erica having more substance just really stuck out. And I think that, um, you know, we need a balance between being sexual, which we all are, and hopefully have a healthy sexual attitude about ourselves, but also that we have a whole lot more going on than just being sexy women. Right. And that it, that it is an extension of a whole self as well. Yes. Please, everybody check out the Black Floyd record. It's really special. And yeah, it's amazing. And if you haven't seen the Wish You Were Here video, you can find it on our socials and on YouTube. It's nice to be able to contribute some relief for people in this album because the reaction that we've been getting from people has been really positive and I feel really good about that. So what now? The record's out. You're promoting the record, you know, through socials. You have this video. I love this video. It's a video for the song Wish You Were Here, which is such a great song. The video is a beautiful message. And kudos to Lorelai. Lorelai made that video. Yeah, that's one of the tremendous benefits of me being locked down in the same house with Dave Fowler, who is an IT guy. He owned his own studio for years, so he's a great engineer, great producer, and he does a lot of video editing. He does animation, which I didn't get him to teach me any of that. I'm not ready to go that far yet, but he did help teach me how to use my Adobe Premiere and do some basic editing. So I've been having fun with that, particularly because when I first got out of high school and went to college, I was studying film. I went to Cal State Northridge for like a semester, and then I found out that UCLA had a program in the music business, so I switched and got into studying the music business instead. But my interest in film never went away. So I definitely intend to develop that further, especially since I have all this downtime at home. I am putting together something for our family, starting with a segment on our father, because he was a very interesting human being, first of all, but there's stuff out there with him. He was meant to be a speechwriter for Bobby Kennedy, and he was there the night Bobby was assassinated, and he's done interviews discussing that. So I'm going to introduce some of that, as well as he was a pen pal and regular guest of Eleanor Roosevelt when he was in college. She was hosting young black college students and they remained pen pals for years. And she actually would correspond with him to find out what things were like for black soldiers in particular. When he was first drafted, they sent him to Mississippi and they were literally whipping the soldiers when they did something wrong. And so they got him moved out of there. And the exposure to that kind of political power was really influential on him and has led to part of why Dirk and I are quite active in our social media when it comes to politics, whether it be encouraging people to do the right thing or participating in a protest or making people aware of an issue that they might not have been aware of because it's just so important to participate in our lives as American citizens and as African-Americans. There's so much that people are beginning to open their eyes to now. And I'm thrilled 
it's a very painful issue, but I'm thrilled that people are starting to understand something as simple as what Jane Elliott said. Jane Elliott is an educator who used a test called the brown-eyed, blue-eyed test, where she would divide her students into the brown-eyed kids and the blue-eyed kids, and she would treat one group very well and treat the other one very badly to try to give people a sense of what it is to face discrimination. But ultimately, the question was, when she would have her gatherings is, if you're not black, would you choose to be black? If your answer is no, the reason is because you realize that you would be treated differently than you are as a white person. And I think that helping people to understand the discrimination that they might not experience themselves is very much real for us. We just have had to figure out how to deal with it. And Durga and I are in an exceptional situation because we didn't come out of the ghetto. We didn't come out of gospel church. Our parents were both professional doctors. We went to private school and had a tremendous exposure to Jewish children and people in the entertainment industry. They sent their kids to our high school. And so we had a completely different experience, especially because we're quite well world-traveled, which has exposed us to culture. And I tell people all the time, I wish that more Americans traveled because the culture of other countries and other ethnicities should be valued. It should be explored and at least experienced a little bit. Even if you don't understand it, just give it a chance to understand that our way of doing things is not the only way. And there are ancient civilizations that we need to learn about, either to learn from what they did well or learn from their mistakes, or just because it's interesting. But I have to add, Louise, that when I was in um, school, Mind you, I'm, you know, not a kid anymore. And so this was a long time ago. In the 70s, 60s, late 60s, black history was you were brought uh, or Africans came to the United States as slaves. And from there on, that's our history. And that was absolutely insufficient and frustrated me to no end. When I was a child, I thought that can't be it. And it wasn't until I got into high school and I was invited to a lecture about the King Tut exhibit. And the guy said, these are images you're not going to see in the exhibit. And they portrayed the Egyptians as dark, like my skin color. And the whole idea that African people had dynasties, that it wasn't just Egypt, it was Nubia, it was Kush. And my mind was blown. And it really gave me a completely different sense of myself as a black person. And I think that if we were to educate our children in the United States with a more well-rounded idea about different cultures, no matter where they come from, that our children would have a more open idea because children can be, I mean, they're so easily molded by what they see and hear. And when you look at something like the doll test, which was a test done back in the late 50s initially, where they would have identical dolls and show them to children. There was a black doll and a white doll. Who's the good child? Generally, they pick the white one. Who's the bad child? The black one. And these tests have gone on over uh, the decades that CNN did one, I believe it was 2012. And we haven't come that far from where they were at in 1959, which is really sad. And it, you think to yourself, why is that? Well, it's something that the children are seeing from a very young age to give them these ideas about each other and about themselves. And we need to do something to fix that. And that's something that I put a lot of focus on in the things that I share on social media. And I know Durga and the rest of our family is very much into promoting a more well-rounded awareness. 
I also found traveling gave me a certain perspective on life here that I would not have otherwise had. When we went to India, I had my 14th birthday in India. So when we went, we went for four months. And of course, at the time, you know, 13, 14, I was very upset that I was going to miss my friends. And because we were staying in an ashram, I wasn't going to be able to eat any meat. And I was going to miss cheeseburgers and television and all the stuff that kids that age tend to think of as their whole world. But what I learned when I got there was, first of all, just leaving the airport, driving to the ashram, we saw whole little villages sprung up on empty fields or almost trash dumps where people were living in tents made out of garbage bags and things like this. And I'd never seen such abject poverty before. And it gave me a new appreciation for the things that I had. Then, you know, when we were in the little village of Ganeshpuri, there would be these little groups of children that would be running around and, you know, if they liked you when they liked me, um, they would want to know who you were. So they'd run up and they'd ask you, what is your name? What is your name? And so I tell them my name is Durga. And so then that was locked in their head. And every time they saw me, I'd be walking across the street, hello Durga, hello Durga. And they'd walk up and they'd all want to touch me and hug me. And they were so lovely and everyone was so friendly. And I started to learn that culturally, the idea of being born into a human body was more than enough because it gave them the opportunity to achieve enlightenment in this lifetime. And here I was thinking I needed to have you know, the right genes and the right shoes. And I had to, you know, have this and live in this place and have this kind of lifestyle. And they were just happy to be human. And it really humbled me. And it was at just the right age to have that lesson when you're starting to get really, or a lot of kids, especially Hollywood kids, you know, are growing up to learn to be really superficial and all that stuff. I realized just how much of an illusion all that was and how unnecessary it was. And I would never have learned that had I not traveled. Um, I also discovered that whenever you go around the world, there are certain cultural things that might be different, but there are certain fundamental human desires that are constant. People want to have a safe place to live. They want to have food to eat. They want to make sure their families you know, are taken care of, and they just want to be treated with dignity. And that's true of every culture I have ever run across. And when you see that people all over the world basically are not that different that changes your perspective as well. Instead of being afraid of the other and the different and the alien, it's not that different. It's really not. And I think I wish that travel were mandatory for students of a certain age in this country because the United States is so insular. It's criminal. And at the basis of a lot of our American cruelty and arrogance, I think. Yeah. And segregation as well, because I find that it's Consistent among musicians, typically, you know, kids of musicians or musicians themselves often are exposed to a wide variety of backgrounds because the common thread is music and everybody makes music. People make music of all walks of life, all cultures, people who come from everywhere. We speak the same language. We have a common language. I have never seen differences with people because I grew up in, in my household. Music united everybody. 
So when people are brought up in schools where there's only white people or only black people or watch movies of stereotypes and everyone from Iran is all portrayed as a terrorist, you know, things are put in these boxes. Then what it does is breeds fear and really programs our brains. It educates people wrongly. And then they see someone who looks like that stereotype and fear sets in. Oh, they must be that. And we are a country, well, it's not just this country, it's it's other places too, where because we all get our information in little boxes and the governments and the school systems do segregate and not so much anymore. It's changed over the years. There was busing and, but it's, it's still very prevalent, the stereotype. And that is the issue because you were exposed, Durga, when you went to India to that other culture. And I grew up the way I grew up and, you know, I moved to Europe for 10 years. I'm so proud to know you both. And I'm really grateful that we could have this time together. Yeah, it's amazing. And if you haven't seen the Wish You Were Here video, you can find it on our socials and on YouTube. So yeah, thank you both. And I, I'll be in touch with both of you. I want to keep talking to you both. And I'm so happy you're back in the States, Lorelai. Thank you so much, Louise. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Louise. Bye. You've been listening to the McBroom Sisters. Thank you so much for listening to the final episode of the first season of Song Chronicles. And if you're enjoying these episodes, we offer them for free and a lot of time goes into them. We would greatly appreciate you taking a few minutes to write a review wherever you stream. Black Floyd is available on Bandcamp, Apple, SoundCloud, and other outlets. You can find out more on their website, themcbroomsisters.com. We're taking a break after this first season for an indefinite time to make way for my first love songwriting and recording. If you missed earlier episodes, please check out our previous fascinating conversations with Gloria Estefan, Al Schmidt, Kathy Valentine, Peter Case, J.D. Souther, Sam Hollander, Gail Ann Dorsey, and Desmond Childs. A big shout out to our guests and all of the people who have contributed. Additional engineering, Elijah Wells, Hayden Wells, Gladwin Graham James. Our theme song has Andy Kravitz on drums, Jackson Foster on trumpet, and Hunter Heilman on bass. Thank you to Mike Barrick for research and website, to Jana Fisher for digital marketing. I'm your host and podcast producer, Louise Goffin. You're listening to The Great Gig in the Sky from Black Floyd, the McBroom Sisters. And please sing with me this November and let your voice be heard. Your voice is the future. This episode concludes the first season. Wishing you all the best. See you soon.